Welcome to Asia-Pacific Defense Reporter, your go-to source for cutting-edge security insights in the region. Get ready for rapid-fire analysis and commentary from the Asia-Pacific with your host, Kim Bergman. Hello and welcome back. If you're hearing this podcast a couple of days later than usual, it's because I was caught up last week at the Indo-Pacific Exhibition in Sydney. And uh, to record these things, I need a bit of spare time and, uh, and peace and quiet. Uh, what I can report from the conference is that I saw no evidence of orgies involving defence personnel taking place, but this is a matter that I'll have to investigate further. I wasn't invited to any, and if I had been, I would have declined to attend. Now, for any new listeners, this might sound like a strange way to begin a podcast, but uh, I'll explain all of that in, in a future one. A highlight for me, if that's the right word, was the opportunity on the Tuesday morning to finally ask Defence Minister Richard Miles about a topic very dear to my heart, AUKUS, and in particular the purchase of second-hand Virginia-class submarines from the United States. You can find a full transcript on the minister's website. I'm not identified by name, but I'm the pesky journalist asking some pretty detailed questions. And unfortunately, the answers were not particularly enlightening. The first question that I asked was about this $4.7 billion donation to US industry. Some of you might recall I called that one out. Previously in Australia, we've been talking about a $3 billion donation. Uh, but it's three billion US dollars, so 4.7 billion Australian. And I asked, what was the basis of that figure, and when will the transfer start to occur? On the the figure itself, the minister, well, I don't want to say evasive, but just stuck with the the general line that well, it's complex and these things are still being discussed and negotiated and all the rest of it. And when I pointed out that the US Congressional Budget Office there in black and white, has put in, in the year 2025, a transfer of two billion US dollars from Australia, which is 3.06 billion Australian. And I asked the minister, where did that figure come from? And uh, Minister Miles said that he had no specific knowledge of it. That seems strange. Certainly the uh, the US Congressional Budget Office is not in the habit of making up these sorts of numbers, so I suspect very much we're seeing a continuation of the previous pattern of people in Australia, in government, just not telling us the full story of what's going on, but quite farcically, we can find out the answers by going to US sources. You just have to know where to look. And I also asked the very obvious question that I've been dying to ask for so long, and that is, we now know from a variety of US sources that before the transfer of second-hand submarines can be agreed to, let alone new ones later in the piece, the rate of production of these submarines has to be lifted from around the one2 1.3 per year that they're producing now to 2.33 per year. The US has to get to two per year to meet their own needs, and that additional 0.33 per year is for the AUKUS requirement. I've been able to put that together through a variety of sources, but that, that, that's what we're looking at. And once again, the minister declined to directly answer that. He 
spoke about the huge amount of enthusiasm that exists for this deal. Enthusiasm on the part of the US, enthusiasm on the part of the UK, enthusiasm on Australia's part. Everyone wants this to happen. It's in everyone's interest to make it happen, blah, 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 all of that sort of stuff. And that was as substantial as it got. Meanwhile, the United States Navy at a very senior level is saying on the record that they are working towards the transfer of the first Virginia-class submarine secondhand in 2032, the second one in 2035, and there's the possibility of 2038 for a new one. Now, I just didn't have enough time to ask the Defence Minister about my other pet topic on this, the disposal of these Virginia-class submarines in Australia by Australians. And a little warning up front. If anybody out there thinks that this is a good idea, you might want to switch off now or go and chug some vodka or have your heart attack medicine because in a moment or two, I'm going to deal with that in terms that will make a number of people feel uncomfortable. The rationale for why they need to be disposed of in Australia has never been outlined. And I can I can point out to people, there's no international rule book about this. There's no resolution of the United Nations. There's no reference in the Bible that I'm aware of saying that the country that receives nuclear-powered submarines has to dispose of them. But the US, in the form of uh, US Navy Undersecretary, Eric Raven, he repeated this on the 25th of October, Again, it's a public hearing. If you look hard enough, you'll be able to find it. He only spent one sentence on on this. He was asked by a congressman whether Australia disposing of the subs was um, still part of the picture. And he said it was incredibly important and it was also part and parcel of the Virginia sale. So it might be incredibly important to the US, but from a logical point of view, it's just total nonsense. There's no imperative to do this other than, it would seem, it suits a US agenda. And the precise nature of that agenda is unknown. We can speculate about that if there's sufficient time. A lot of people think that this situation that Australia is in of receiving nuclear-powered submarines is unique. Uh, No, it's not. It's unique in the sense it's the first time that the US has transferred nuclear-powered submarines, but it's been done before. It's been done three times by Russia to India. Well, technically, the first time was in 1989, so that was the Soviet Union, but it's been done twice since. My Indian friends tell me that these transfers have been quite successful. The Indian Navy has learned from the experience, and they've gone on to incorporate all of those lessons into their own nuclear-powered submarine programs. So the Indians haven't had to dispose of the Russian nuclear-powered submarines. The Russians have taken them back and have done it within their own system. Probably not very well, but, but you know the principle exists there. So put it very simply and very bluntly and as rudely as I can, In other words, the United States is treating Australia far worse than Russia has treated India. 
just think about it for a second, okay? Just think about it for a second. Our supposedly greatest ally is forcing us to spend vast amounts of money and accept all of the huge risk involved rather than use their own disposal facilities, which have been set up since the 1950s, to take their submarines back and dispose of them on home territory. Australia, of course, pay for that. But this idea that we have to replicate US facilities here just is, well, it's not only illogical, but I go further and say it's not the actions of an ally. There's some sort of, I don't know, ideological motivation at work here. How about some of our big brave boys and girls go back to the United States and say, listen, guys, we're your closest ally and what we now want is to be treated in the same way that Russia treated India. How about we just have parity with, with that? I, mean, I don't know how the US would react, but I'd certainly like to see it pushed very hard because this is going to be a real problem for Australia. I've, you know, just where the facilities are going to be located and, and that sort of thing. So it was, uh, it was a shame that I didn't have a chance to get onto that with the minister, but I will do so on a future occasion. Getting back to the uh, press conference, the minister, who, by the way, I should say, you know, with, with Richard Miles, he's a perfectly nice person. He's, you know, he's very, very friendly and sociable and, and all of the rest. I, you know, there's nothing about him that I, that I dislike at, at that level. I just have profound misgivings about the way that the defence portfolio is being handled and the implications of AUKUS in particular. Anyway, it was one of my colleagues, Andrew Green from the ABC, who completely triggered him by asking him about a comment the day before from a retired chief of the army, Peter Lay, that Lay was concerned that the defence budget was being gutted. But the minister, who had shown just you know the occasional flash of irritation when I was trying to get to the bottom of things with nuclear-powered submarines, really kind of seemed to lose it on, uh, on that one and uh, went so far as to basically call Peter Lay a liar and a has-been. Now, a number of us know uh, Peter Lay very well. He, he's, uh, he had an impeccable service record, rising to the rank of chief of the army, and since that time, he's been a well-regarded academic. And what Peter Lay said, in substance, is actually true. It's about the defence budget. And Peter Lay stated the obvious that the defence budget is being cut. Miles said, no, that, that's a lie. That's not happening at all. So I've dealt with this previously, but since it's flared up again, I'll quickly canter through it again. For the Defence Minister to say that the budget isn't being cut requires him to include numbers from 2027 onwards. His argument seems to be that at that point, there'll be a large rise in defence expenditure and say, so, you know, over the next decade, uh, Labor is on this upward trajectory, but the trajectory isn't constant. And as I've said before, for the next three years, we are actually in decline. And that's because of inflation. Now, this has been, it was first identified in budget analysis by the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, but probably more importantly, has been confirmed several times by defence officials during Senate estimates hearings. So you, you really can't, be, or there's something wrong with you if you're in denial about a reduction in defence expenditure 
over the next three years. And what happens after that? Honestly, who cares? There'll be a federal election. We, you know, the earth might have been struck by an asteroid. We, we have to focus on, on the short term situation. But you see, it's sort of even worse than that. And I really wish that more people were aware of this, including many of my colleagues in the mainstream media. To get a true indication of defence expenditure, what you have to look at is not the flashy announcement that is made on budget night on June the 30th. What you have to look at is what the situation is on June the 29th the following year. In other words, has defence spent all of the money that has been allocated to them? And the answer to that in recent years has been no. Last financial year, mainly because everything was put on hold by the Defence Strategic Review, there was an underspend of about $1.4 billion. People tell me that this year the situation might be even worse. So focus on what the actual pattern is, not on what the government has promised to do. The reason why we might be looking at another spend, and a really big one, is because this the government's response into the review of the Navy's surface fleet keeps on getting delayed further and further. Pat Conroy, I think it was, when the review was delivered, said that the government would be responding before the end of February. Well, the word that a number of us were getting during the conference was that, no, it might be March or it might be April. You have to ask, what on earth is happening here? We all know it's much easier to read a review than it is to write it in the first place. And I'm going to quote from Richard Miles from April 24th. That's April 24th this year. He simply said in a media conference, well, it is a short, sharp review and it will report in the third quarter of this year. So that's the first point to make. The second point to make is that the DSR makes really clear the need for Australia to maintain a continuous shipbuilding capability in this country. That means both at Osborne Naval Shipyard, but also Henderson in Perth. And we have accepted that recommendation and we are completely committed as a government to Australia having a continuous shipbuilding capability. Very fine words, but why are you sitting on this review, which is critical to the future of the service fleet? There are a number of companies out there that are very, very nervous about what's going on, and it's not helped by the government, the department, and the Navy, and particularly against a background with these huge donations about to start happening to the United States to support US industry. These things are in the pipeline. The situation is not helped by having a defense minister who appears to be in denial of the reality of short-term budget cuts. He speaks and acts as if he believes his own rhetoric, that there are no cuts because he's focused on the 10-year intention rather than the immediate three-year reality. I'm going to, I'm running out of time, but I'm going to quickly uh, jump to another topic uh, dear to my heart. And this is relying on some notes that I made uh, a fortnight ago while I was still in Korea traveling around. And it's really about what to point out and everyone needs to understand this, how good the Defence Department and occasionally with the you know, presumed agreement of ministers has become its sliming defence industry. And I noticed while I was over there that there were various reports that our LHDs, two big LHDs, that their water, water purification systems 
you know, had failed and, this, uh, and, and sailors ran the risk of drinking poisoned water and bottled water needed to have been brought on board, blah, blah, blah. Smearing in the process, Navantia, the designer of the LHDs, Navantia this, Navantia that, you know, poisoned water. Now, the last time I checked, Navantia delivered the, the ships in 2016, 2017, something like that. And since that time, their support has been the responsibility of the Navy and CASG, the, CA, the SG standing for Sustainment Group. Half of the acquisition budget, well, half of it is to buy new stuff and the other half is to keep stuff that's been bought going. So they've got billions of dollars. Now, I think that the industry partner for the, the LHD is, is actually BAE Systems. So all of the fingers were pointed at Navantia, but I bet when somebody goes to the trouble of unpacking all of this, you'll probably find that, that it was some minor functionary, functionary in CASG who'd already exceeded their support budget for the LHDs for this financial year. And so rather than having some work done, pushed it out into you know, 2025, something like that, and sailors now run the risk of getting poisoned. I've previously had quite a bit to say about Airbus and helicopters. They've been completely smeared as well over Taipan and Tiger repeatedly. And there was another cunning attempt by Army. I'll, I'll you know, I'll give it to them that they're obviously putting some, some thought into this. Uh, they called in my colleague, or offered, I should say, rather than called in, they offered my colleague, Andrew Green from the ABC, mentioned earlier, a briefing about the Nara Taipan ditching, which I've dealt on previously, and I and others have suggested that it was, um, you know, an engine failure and a combat, uh, and some crew factors and all the rest. Well, Army tried a pretty good thing of distraction by saying, well, it was a previously undisclosed or, or unidentified problem in the engine, I guess smearing Safran, the, the engine manufacturer, um, in the process, one of the world's great engine suppliers, I must say, and sort of, you know, just muddying the waters a little bit. We still don't know the precise reason for that component failure, but it could have been the, a consequence of Army not updating the software for the helicopters to avoid a hot start of the engine. And also Army were just refused to be drawn on what I believe the situation was, namely that in the chaos and confusion of the, of the moment, the pilot applied power to the engine that had failed and shut down the good engine. And as a result, it went into the drink. So there you go, a bit more, a, a bit more bashing of, um, of Airbus and now Safran. Army and, and Defence have now also accepted that the terrible accident that occurred during Talisman Sabre that killed four service personnel was not the fault of the helicopter, but they, again, will not come out and say so directly. All that they will do is point to statements by the CEO of Airbus Helicopter, basically Airbus Helicopter saying that they are not aware of any technical issues with the helicopter. Well, I mean, just, just come out and say it, please because they're, they're leaving it out there. They're, uh, Airbus employs, employed, pardon me, they've had to be sacked because of the circumstances, 400 people in Brisbane, of whom half are ADF veterans. 
So, yep, smear them, smear the uh, smear the helicopter brand, but don't own up for your own actions. And a final one on that theme, I saw that uh, the Arafura class have been put on the lists of projects of concern. Again, <laughs> that sort of automatically smears Lurson. Everyone goes, oh, well, you know, must be the fault of the, the, the company. No, it's more complex than that. I'll, I'll have a lot more to say on that in the future. I've been very limited in what I can report because, of course, defences ban Lurson telling their side of the story, but they can't ban everyone. They can't get to every single contractor. And I can assure you with more to come on, on this topic, it doesn't look like it's the fault of the company. Okay. Thank you all for listening. And um, hopefully next time I'll be able to clarify the situation as to whether or not orgies involving Defence Department personnel took place during the Indo-Pacific exhibition. Bye for now. That's today's Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter. For more in-depth articles, expert opinions and exclusive interviews, visit asiapacificdefensereporter.com. Stay informed, stay ahead. This is your source for all things defence. Until next time.